thank you for this opportunity to come together. We ask you to bless this time as we look at your word, guide and lead us, show us what you would like us to see, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Hosea chapter 7. Up to this point, he's been talking that Israel deserves punishment, that God's going to punish them. And now in verse uh, chapter 7, starting at verse 1. When I would have healed Israel, then the iniquity of Ephraim was discovered and the wickedness of Samaria, for they commit falsehood. And the thief comes in and the troop of robbers spoil without. And they consider not in their hearts that I remember all their wickedness. Now their own doings have beset them about. They are before my face. They make the king glad with their wickedness and the princes with their lies. They are adulter they are all adulterers, and as an oven heated by the baker who ceases who ceases from rising after he has kneaded the dough until it leavens. In the end of our king the princes in the day that our king the princes have made him sick with the bottles of wine, he stretched out his hand with scorners, for they have made ready their heart like an oven. While they lay in wait, their baker sleeps all the night. In the morning it burns as a flaming fire. And they, they are all hot as an oven and have devoured their judges. All their kings are fallen. There is none among them that calls upon me. All right. So here we end up starting. God starts out. He goes, when I would have healed Israel. God's desire is to bring healing and forgiveness. And he's going, when I was set to, when, when I was ready to, he goes, then Ephraim's iniquity was discovered and the wickedness of Samaria which they, was discovered. And so he discovers the wickedness of the people all over again. All right? Uh, and this is kind of an interesting thing. Sometimes when the nations are coming close to the end, there'll be those times when things look like they may be changing look like a revival starting and God's grabs God's attention and then goes right back to being wicked again and usually more wicked than when they started and this is the problem with wickedness that is being controlled by our flesh I give up my sin my drinking my, my drugs my whatever my sin is and then when I fall I don't go back to where I left off I go deeper than what I left off. Try to make up for lost time or something. I don't know the reason being, but we see it with people who are alcoholics a lot of times. And this is why their family, when they go get off alcohol without God, their family's going, okay, when are you gonna, when are you gonna fall back down? And we just know that you're gonna be worse than you were before. And it's almost a self-fulfilling prophecy because they're going, we know you're gonna fall and they're not supporting you now when you fall, and you fall and they're going, oh, I knew that was gonna happen. And they're not there to encourage, they're not there to build up. And yet, when we fall, we go back further. And we've all seen it in whatever sin we have, where we just fall right back into our sin and deeper than we started on. And this is what he's saying, I was ready to, I was ready to forgive you, ready to heal the land, and then I saw. Ephraim is another name for Israel. Samaria is another name for Israel, because both of those were names that they used it. So God is saying, just when I was ready to forgive Israel, Israel showed me, showed me its sin again. And he goes, they commit falsehoods, and a thief comes in, and a troop of robbers spoil without. You know, they commit falsehoods, depravities. All right? they're, they're, they're always depraved. And this is the interesting thing that we find in our day and age. Everybody keeps wanting to say men are basically good. Now, I don't know what people they're looking at to say that they're basically good. Now, they will caveat it with, well, they're being taught to be bad. If they weren't taught to be bad, they, wouldn't, they, wouldn't be, they would just be good people. So you ask them, well, how are they being taught to be bad? Well, you put rules on them. If you didn't put rules on them, they wouldn't violate the rules and they would be good. It's just a really silly way of thinking, and yet it is really hard to believe that they believe this. Right, because there was no rule against it. That's their logic. You know, my kid can't get in trouble if I didn't tell them not to do something because then there would be no rule for them to break. And that's their logic that they will use. We teach people to be bad by giving them rules to break. 
Uh, it's, it's a strange logic, but it is that human nature. The human nature wants to think that somehow I can be good enough to please God because if I just didn't have all these rules on me, I wouldn't have anything to break. And so this is the logic that they use. Uh, it is funny because you start talking to them and they'll admit that they don't know anybody good. They'll admit that they're bad, you know, that they do bad things. But still, they're taught that people are basically good. That if people just try hard enough, they can be good. Now, I don't know what they're trying because they say the rules are the problem. So if they're trying to keep the rules that are the problem, then they're still a problem. And yet, that's what they'll come up with. This is the circular logic of the world. They will say two things in the same, diametrically opposed at the same time and not even recognize that they are doing so. And it's really hard because I, I get to talk a lot to a lot of the counselors and psychologists out at the prison. They're in the same, same building on me. And it's funny listening to them. It is funny listening to what they'll say and how they say it and what they believe. I don't challenge them too much because it's a losing battle. I don't have a doctor in front of my name to tell them that they don't know what they're talking about. I have God's word to know that they don't know what they're talking about. Uh, they have man's ideas taught to them by other people with nice titles in front of them that are teaching what man is taught and what, what goes all the way back to Freud. And Freud says, look at what's, what happened to you and that's why you are what you are. All right? So you're not responsible for anything you do. You can always blame somebody else. If mom and dad hadn't done something, if my, if my boyfriend or girlfriend back in high school didn't, hadn't done this to me, I wouldn't be this way. If my brother or sister hadn't done this to me, I wouldn't be this way. And that is what Freud teaches them to look at. Instead of looking at my heart is wicked and evil and God has to change it, and turning to him and having true change, it's let's look and find out why you're what you are. Now once you understand why you're what you are, now maybe we can get you to start thinking correctly. But they're never going to get to thinking correctly because they start with that you're good and that you can be good. And when you start with the wrong beginning place, you're going to get to the wrong end place. All right? That would be like trying to go on a, on a trail and you don't go to the beginning of the trail. You just go, you go five miles away and say, I'm following this trail. And I'm going to get to the top. And you're nowhere near the trail. And you're trying to find the, the, the trail head and you're going, I can't find the trail head, and I'm going to, but I'm going to end up where that trail goes. But I'm not even at the right place to start the trip. And this is the problem with most of the world's thinking. They're starting at the wrong place with the lies of Satan to start out with rather than the truth of God. And here is God saying, I was, I'm all set to bless you and yet you are living this way. You are committing falsehoods. You're committing. It says the, thieves are com the thief is coming in and a troop of robbers spoil without and Satan is called that thief. He is the one that tries to steal our joy. He is the one that tries to lie to us. And so this is Satan and his minions out there. And, not, and I'm not saying that everything that happens to us is directly Satan, but it is his word that started it. And then people have taken and, and grown, have grown on it and work on it. And he is out there to steal our joy. And the problem with most of us Christians are that we let him come in and steal our joy. We believe the lies of Satan in the world and have our joy stolen from us rather than living in the victory of God and his truth and agreeing with God. And this is sad. This is why I'm really encouraging people, read Ephesians 1 and 2 and get to know who you are in Christ and really understand who we are. I'm, I'm reading a book right now on how to study the Bible for the layman and for people advanced. And you know what he says? He says to read a book over and over and over until you understand that book. He's not saying study it. He's not saying open up a strong concordance and do a word study. He is just saying read that book so many times until you fully understand that book. And I like that. That's, that's really how I used to study before I learned how to study. <laughs> I would just read a book and then I'd read it again and I'd read it again and I'd read it again until I really understood that book. And it's not a bad way to study. 
I have done that over the years and I know the book. So now when I go in and I can study deep and, and tear it apart, I have the overview still in my mind. And this, even to this day when I read these ones, I'll go in and I'll read the whole book of Hosea. I'll study the section that I read. I'll go back in, read the whole book of Hosea. Go back and read it. Why? Because I want to know what Hosea says as a large book, as a complete book. Because it is real easy to get lost in the trees and not see the forest anymore. I'm standing right dead in front of a tree and can't see the forest because I'm looking at the detail of this tree and I'm standing in the middle of a beautiful forest uh, not paying attention to the rest of the forest. Or, let's put it in tr other terms, I'm standing in front of this beautiful mountain and I'm focused on one rock at the bottom of the mountain. I'm not looking at the beauty of the entire mountain. I'm, I'm missing the vein of gold three feet above that rock because I'm just looking at that rock and tearing that rock apart. So we want to be able to look and just say, God, what is it that you teach? What is it that you want me to understand? And I'm not downplaying the deep studies either, but we do need to understand a full study as we go through and understand the whole. That is like when you went through the book of Job. We can get lost in the book of Job. Job's a beautiful book from, in, from beginning to end, but we can get lost in the 42 chapters of Job and get lost in all the arguments and all these things and, and forget that God started it and God's going to end it. And all that stuff in between is, is frivolous detail of them arguing back and forth their doctrines. And if we don't remember the whole of it, we get lost. And this is very important as we, even as we look at this book. This book is Hosea telling a rebellious people that judgment is coming at a time when they're not listening. The hardest time to tell somebody that judgment is coming is when everything's going good. You know, uh, the police are coming to get you tomorrow. Well, I, nobody's been out here. Nobody's been locked to me. I've got no problems. And they're so confident that everything's going well. And then the next thing you know, the police are at their door arresting them. All right. Because you knew something they didn't. You know, you, you, you had been at the police station and you heard them talking about who they were going to arrest the next day. Or, you know, and this is the thing. We need to know the whole picture. And Hosea is preaching to a people that are prosperous everything looks like it's going well and they're going you keep telling us about God's judgment what, what, what are you talking about why, why are we worried about God's judgment we've got food food on our tables the the crops are abundant we're getting rain we're getting the proper rain at the right times our our flocks are large and you're telling us God is judging us and basically going Hosea you don't know what you're talking about I don't I kind of feel sorry for him he had a real hard audience to preach to to be able to say everything's you're going to be judged and they're looking at him going you don't know what you're talking about i got money in the bank my job is doing good and everything's looking good you know my family's growing my my flocks are growing and joe hosea we just don't know what's wrong with you why are you trying to be a wet blanket you know just look around and look how good things are and most of the time god's judgment falls when everything looks like it's going good on, on a on a people it says here in verse 4, And they consider not in their hearts that I remember all their wickedness. Now all their doings have beset them about, and they are before my face. God saying, I know everything. How many times do we, even as Christians, sometimes act like God doesn't know anything? Know about what we're doing. We know that he knows in our mind. And yet how many times do we live as if he's not watching, not accounting for our sin as we go out and sin? Ah, well, you know, and we might not really be thinking about it, but if we really truly believe that God sees everything, are there some things we wouldn't do in our life? Yeah. Not only does God see everything, he knows what we think. Okay, so we can't just even think it and think that we're getting away with it. God already knows our thoughts. Because he is that all-knowing. You know, and so, and I've seen so many people, well, you know, I didn't do it. I sure thought about it, but I didn't do it, so I'm okay. And God's saying, no, I'm, you're guilty. And so God's telling them, I know everything that you have done. And they knew this. They were, they were Jewish people. They, knew, they understood that God knew them. 
that he knows their innermost being, he knows their innermost thoughts, and yet they're acting like he doesn't know. Worshiping idols, having a good time doing everything that God says not to do, and God says, don't you realize that I know everything? This is something that we as Christians always have to keep in the back of our mind. God knows everything. Because we are so easy to judge others and not look at ourselves. God, you've got to go talk to that person over there. I know they're doing what I do, but you've got to go talk to them. <laughs> yeah. And I've heard this so many times. You know, a message is spoken and it'll be, wow, I just wish so-and-so had been here to hear this message. Well, so-and-so probably wasn't supposed to hear it. They weren't here. You were here. Did you learn anything from it? Now, I'm not going to be that mean and nasty to him, but yet it really comes down to that. You, know, you think so-and-so needed to hear it, but what about you? Did you need to hear it? And usually when somebody's saying that somebody else needs to hear it, it's they needed to hear it. Uh, and it's so easy for us to look at other people and say, that person's so much worse than I am. They really need this message more than I do. Yeah, God, it was okay. I, I kind of needed it, but that person really needed it. And this is what he's saying. I know everything. I'm looking at everything. You're, all of their sin is before my eyes. And this is what he's saying. God's saying, I know what's going on. I know how you seem to be being blessed, but I know all your sins are before my eyes, and they will have to be judged. Now he goes into what the world looks like. Verse 3 says, They make the king glad with their wickedness and the princes with their lies. The government delights in their sin. And to me, this is so hard because what's happening in our country? Our government is delighting in the sins of the people and making them allowable activities. There's no more, adult, uh, no more fornication. You're just living together. Who cares? No big deal. You know, homosexuality, no big deal, we approve of it. Transgenderism, no big deal, we approve it. Murder babies, no big deal, we approve it. And they take pleasure in sin. And almost glory in it. This is, their, this is that picture. They make the king glad with their transgressions and the princes with their lies. And we see the, the politicians in our country glorying over these sins how free our country is becoming, how independent we are becoming of the rules and the old-fashioned rules of God. And they take pleasure in it. And this is what he's saying. This is, this is down toward the bottom of the judgment time. When we get to that point, God says, we're in, you're, you're in a lot of trouble. When the government is not supporting, uh, supporting my rules, you're headed for trouble. Even when it looks like everything's not. Verse 4 says, they are adulterers as an oven heated by the baker who ceases from raising after he kneads the dough until it is leavened. And this is kind of poetic life, and he's basically saying the oven's been lit and he's not having to feed it again. That's a hot oven. And he's saying, and because if you've ever made bread, you let the bread raise, you knead it back down, you let it rise again, and you knead it back down, and you let it rise again before you, before you bake it. So it's a long process and he says this baker it's like the oven that the baker they're they're being like that oven that is so hot that it does not need to be restoked before the bread is made and that's a pretty pretty hot oven uh, in our days it's real easy because the, the sensors turn them on and off but back in those days you had to keep putting wood on the fire to keep it keep it hot and so he said you're just like that really hot oven that stays hot and verse 5 says, In the day our kings and princes have made him sick with the bottles of wine, he stretches out his hand with the scorners. The princes feed the king this alcohol, this drug, this, this desire to do to evil. And we see this even in our day. How much is being fed to our, our chief executive about how bad things are? Now, I don't think he's all that great in all of his decisions, but the people under him are even worse. And they're really pushing him into some decisions that are probably not his ones that he wants to make, but he's making what he has to make to keep them on his side. And here we see the princes encouraging, encouraging the king. You know, here, just have another drink. Have another, have another enjoyment of this sin. You know, it's not bad. You know, uh, you, you know all the people are worshiping their idols. Come on out and worship with us. Come and join us. 
And this is the sad thing. Our country was founded on the idea that our leaders would be moral. Now, we have come a long way since, we, since then. We don't even consider their moral standing in many cases before we vote for them anymore. Uh, they're giving, they're mostly voted for, I promise to give you free, fill in the blank. Now, uh, free education, free houses, free, free income, all the stuff that's being promised to our people today. Well, there's no such thing as free from the government. They've got to get the money from somebody, which means anybody who's working gets to pay, gets to pay people for all the free stuff they get. And this is the whole problem. And our founding fathers knew that the day that they voted, that people voted to get stuff from the taxes, the, the republic was over. Because no longer are they doing what's good for the country, they're doing what gets them to vote. And we saw this in the last election. You know, they vote for me and I will give you uh, free uh, health care. We will give you, you know, we will forgive your, your debts for your, for your loans that you voluntarily charged up so you could get your education. And, but we're going to take it away from you because those terrible bankers got you to sign, con you know, twisted your arm behind your back and made you, turn, made you sign these contracts at a gunpoint. Uh, so we're going to take them away from you. We're going to give you this free. We're going to give you that free. And, and now people are voting to get stuff from the government rather than what's good for the country. And we are in trouble because of that. And this is them. You know, the princes set up the king. Uh, king, just do what's good, 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 good. You know, you're getting sick, but it, and the people are getting sick. And the whole country is going down the drain. But you're going to be popular with the people. Everybody's going to like you. Uh, so just do this. It says, For they have made ready their heart like an oven, while they lie in wait. Their baker sleeps in the night, and in the morning it burns as a flaming fire. The idea of concentrating on something. Have you ever gone to bed angry with somebody, and you're thinking about how angry you are, and you wake up just as angry or angry with them the next morning? Yeah. You know, it's a pretty sad thing. Our brain keeps working at night. I like the last thing that I'm thinking about to be about God. I try to read something about, uh, from the Bible or God or listen to Christian music before I go to bed so that my mindset is now on God rather than bad all, all night long. And here it says, they've made ready their heart like an oven and in the morning it burns. All right? It burns like a flaming fire. Uh, I'm not sure if anybody knows what it was like back in the days when we had wood stoves, wood of uh, wood wood for our fireplace. That's all I have. You used to have to bank the fire. You would put the coals in the back with a little bit of of wood on it to keep it just simmering overnight, not blazing, but just simmering. And then you would feed it in the morning and let it blaze back up. So you, you weren't trying to start it from scratch. Uh, now, I'm not old enough to remember those days, but my mom was telling me about what it used to be like. You know, to, we had a wood stove when we were in Scotland, and she had to bank the stove so the next morning she could get the stove running to, to be able to cook. All right? Uh, and so this is what he's talking about. You're banking that flame overnight, and that flame bursts in as soon as you give it fresh, fresh fuel. This is why it is very important for us to forgive other people, to get it out in the open, to apologize and forgive people. And I really understand that a lot of times we'll say, well, I will forgive them when they ask. Don't wait for them to ask, just forgive them, because they may never ask. And if they never ask to forgive, and you never forgive them because they never ask, then you're mad at them for the rest of your life. They may not even know that they've done anything. Forgive. Learn to forgive. Jesus said, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing while he was on the cross. Nobody down there in front of him had asked to be forgiven. Nobody down there wanted to be forgiven. Nobody down there thought they had done something worth being forgiven for. The Roman centurions were just doing their job. He's a prisoner, we're executing him. They didn't think they were doing anything wrong, and Jesus said, forgive them. 
Forgive the Jewish leaders who have put me here by their lies and their testimony. Now, they'd known that they had done wrong, but they still weren't looking to be forgiven because they're trying to hold their power. And he says, forgive them. His expectation for us is to forgive people. Not because they deserve it, because they don't. Not because they want it, because they don't, usually don't. So we just forgive. And then once we forgive, we stop thinking about it. And I know that's the hard part. People go, well, it's hard to forget. It's really not that hard to forget. If you stop thinking about it, you forget. And I love to ask people, you know, they go, well, I just can't forget this activity. I'm going, what did you eat last, uh, two weeks ago on Thursday night? Now, unless it was a special night, they're not going to remember what they ate two weeks ago on Thursday night. I go, I don't, and they'll usually say, well, I don't know. I go, why don't you know? You just told me it's hard to forget. Why don't you know? And they'll usually come to the, well, I never think about it. Exactly. How do I forget a wrong done to me? I stop thinking about it. I stop rehearsing it in my mind. And when I stop thinking about it, I stop regurgitating it and getting angry all over again. Because when I'm thinking about it, I get all angry all over again. And then what happens is I usually add things to my, my memory. A lot of times that didn't really happen. I start giving them motive. Well, they did or they said because. I hate it when they, people do that because I, I know people that, well, I, this is what they said, but this is what they meant. What do you mean that's what they meant? Well, I just know that that's what they meant. How do you know that's what they meant? Well, it's, it's, I've been thinking about it so long that I know that that's what they meant. I've been rehearsing it in my mind, and I know that they were doing this on purpose. The moment you step into assigning motive to an action, you are in big trouble. Because now the truth doesn't even set you free at that point because you've got to get past your assigned motive. And I've done conflict resolution so many times, and I've heard so many times, well, they meant this, or this is what they said, and this is why they said it. How do you know that? Well, I just know. And it always boils down to, I just know. Yeah. Uh, and this is very important. To get rid of that anger and that upsetness, I've got to stop rehearsing it. Then I can forgive. And forgiveness is not forgetting it, but it's giving up my right to demand punishment for them. And this is hard for us to do. Because we think we're the one that, that has been hurt by what they've done. And to a small degree, we have been. But you know what? We, it couldn't have happened if God did not allow it to happen. And who is really hurt? God. David in Psalm 51 says to God, against you and you only have I sinned, talking about the adultery with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah. Now that's pretty harsh because he'd, Bathsheba had been hurt, or Uriah had been hurt, the family of both of those people had been hurt. Because now a marriage has been destroyed, a murder has happened, and David's prayer is, God, against you and you only have I sinned. We need to really get that attitude in our heart. When somebody hurts us, it's truly God who has been sinned against. I need to let it go because God says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And if we can truly get to the place where we say, God, okay, it's yours. God, I'm, I, really want to, I really want them hurt, but I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to forgive them even though they don't deserve it. I'm going to forgive them even though I don't feel like forgiving them. And ask God's help in forgiving them. And God says, I'll remember. I'll remember. And I will deal with them at the right time. Israel is going to go into captivity. Not too many years after this prophecy. Long enough that people forget it. But not long, long after. It's only another 20 years, 20, 30 years from the time that this prophecy goes to the time they go into captivity. Most of the people he's talked to are, going, are getting to the end of their lives thinking, yeah, that Hosea, he really didn't know what he was talking about. God hasn't brought judgment. Much as what our world says today in America, God hasn't brought judgment on us. We're committing adultery all the time. We're committing fornication all the time. We're, we're stealing, we're murdering. There's no consequences to sin. And God says, your sins are before me. Your sins are before me. They're going to be judged. 
And unfortunately, we kind of want it to be, God, I want you to judge them yesterday. Uh, God, they hurt me. Go get them. And God, I don't want it to be gotten sometime. I want it done. I really wanted it done yesterday, God, so get it done today. I want to see it be done while I'm still thinking about it. And God's saying, just be patient. And, on, and even beyond that, we don't know what's going on in their heart. How much guilt that they have when the Holy Spirit is speaking to them, which then drives them to their drugs and their alcohol and more sin until they turn, turn to God. And this is something that's very important for us to understand. When somebody looks like they're having a good time does not necessarily mean that everything's going well in their heart. Think about back before you saved. How many times did you think you were having a good time while you were in the middle of something and you knew that it was just as empty as when you and knew you were totally empty and dead even though you were putting on a, a good face and you were happy. But when you went home, that loneliness, that hardship hit you. And then you would take more drugs or more alcohol to numb, to numb the pain and try to forget. And that's all that it comes down to. Many of these people are numbing their pain, trying to forget, when the only thing that will make them forget is God. And this is the good news. When we truly trust God, he gives us peace that passes understanding. When I know that God is in control, God is in charge, he is going to give the revenge that I, that I want him to give in my flesh. I just relax in him live a peaceful life with him and let him do what he wants to do, there's peace. And I'm not saying it's easy to do. It's not easy to give up sometimes, and especially when somebody hurts you really bad. And you're going, God, I just want to see that person suffer. And you start giving it into God. and You give it into God. And then when you do, the ultimate is when they finally do get what they, were, what they deserve and you're, and you're not happy about it. I've had that happen more than once when somebody gets what, they, what, what I felt they deserved. I'm going, God, I'm not happy that that happened to them. I'm, if that's what it takes to get them to you, I'm happy, but I'm not happy that that person has suffered. Because too many times it's not just the person who suffers. It's their family, the nation. Last night we talked about the death of Saul. Saul dies, his three, son, his three oldest sons die. His army is, is decimated and killed, you know, all because of his sin. All because of Saul's sin, thousands of people die in battle, including many of his family. And he loses the kingdom. Yeah. And this is the sad thing. When we really think about it, sin's consequences are harsh. I had a man that was mistreating me, and I was, on one side of me, I wanted to see him hurt, but when he finally got hurt, it was his whole family that got hurt, and I wasn't very happy with the results. You know, if it had been just him, I probably would have been okay. But his whole family suffered because of his sin. And he's not the only person that I have seen this happen with in my lifetime. Not just the biblical stories, but I have seen people whose families have suffered because of their sin. And you're going, God, why? Why, did the, why does the family have to suffer? But that is the way it is. Sin always costs more than we think it's going to cost. And we usually think, well, you know, God, I can put up with that. I can, I can deal with the pain, you know, the pain and suffering I will go through. All right, well, what about your family? Do they deserve the pain and suffering that's going to come because of it? God, I just like my drugs. I can handle the hangovers. I can handle the... The, sale, the fact that I'm stealing everything from the house to pay for the drugs and, and cheating my family out of their life and not having food in the house, that's no big deal. You know, I'm not hurting them. <laughs> and that's how we end up looking at things. I'm not hurting anybody but myself. When if we opened up our eyes, we'd see the hurt everywhere. And I hear that so many times when somebody gets saved and their eyes are opened up to the hurt that hurt everybody around them, not just themselves when, in their sin. And here's what he's talking about. They are, they are like a hot oven. They have devoured their judges. All their kings are fallen. There is none among them that calls unto me. Now, this is the ultimate. This is when things get really bad, when there's nobody left calling upon God. The only thing saving our country right now is the remnant church calling upon God for a revival, calling on God for a repentance. 
And if we keep going the way we're going, that might even stop. Because there are so many churches that are not preaching the gospel, not teaching forgiveness, not, not teaching to reach the lost. The day that we get to the place where there's remnant is not calling on God, judgment will fall. And judgment is due this com- country. Don't get me wrong. Judgment is due this country. We, we deserve to be totally ter- torn apart for the sin of this country. It is the righteous people that are keeping that judgment at bay. How much longer? I don't know. There were righteous people in Israel when it was conquered. There were righteous people in Judah when it was conquered. But God says, okay, there's not enough to keep this nation from being conquered. At what point will this country suffer? I don't know. Nobody knows. I'm looking forward to the day of the rapture when we can all go home anyway and, and, let, and let everything start its t- clock, clocking to the, last, to the last return of Christ. Uh, but I think things are going to get bad before then, really bad before then. Verse 8, Ephraim, he has mixed himself among the peoples. Ephraim is a cake not turned. Strangers have devoured his strength, and he knows it not. Yes, gray hairs are here and there upon him, yet he knows it not. The pride of Israel testifies in his face, and they do not return to the Lord their God, nor seek him for all this. Ephraim is like a silly dove without heart. They call to Egypt and they go to Assyria. When they shall go, I will spread my net upon them. I will bring them down as the fowls of heaven. I will chastise them as, as their congregation has heard. Woe unto them, for they have fled from me. Destruction unto them, because they have transgressed against me. Though I have redeemed them, yet they have spoken lies against me. They have not cried unto me with their heart. When they howl upon their beds, they assemble themselves for corn and wine, and they rebel against me. Though I have bound and strengthened their arms, yet they imagine mischief against me. They return, but not to the Most High. They are like a deceitful bow. Their princes shall fall by the sword for the rage of their tongue. This shall be their derision in the land of Egypt." This is pretty serious information that God is giving them. He goes, Ephraim has mixed itself amongst the people and mingled. God told his people to be separate from the world. And this is, the Jews did this for the most part for many, many years. They did not intermarry outside of Judaism. This is part of the problem with the, the, the northern kingdom. They intermarried all over the place. And it's going to be the problem with Samaria during that time when they're in, in Babylon, they get married to the people in that area and they become half-breeds as far as the Jews are concerned. Even to this day, for an Orthodox Jew to marry a non-Jewish person is a serious offense. And if it, in many cases, the family will treat that, that daughter or son as if they died. They dared to marry a non-Jew. And I have a friend who was a rabbi, he, got, he became a Christian, his family had a funeral for him. They bought a casket, they buried the casket, and they would not take letters, phone calls, or anything from him because he was an infidel. He had abandoned the, the Jewish faith. Now, there are scriptural references on this. God says, don't intermingle. Be, be holy. This is my call to you. So this is not, and even for us, Paul in in Galatians said, be not unequally yoked to the Christians. Don't get married to a non-Christian. Don't go into business with a non-Christian. And, you know, why? Because the non-Christian is going to tear you down. You go into business with a non-Christian and you want to do things God's way. And they're going to look at you and go, well, you don't understand, this is business. This This isn't church. This isn't the Bible. You know, if you want to get this sale, you have to lie to the person. Tell them what they want to hear. And they'll be teaching their salesman to lie. And I know a Christian businessman who used to tell his salesman that they could tell these people anything they wanted. He actually told the people something that belongs to Islam. You can lie to the, you can lie to the, non, to the non-believers. Well, my question is, how do you know they're a non-believer in the first place? And where in the Bible does it say that you can lie to anybody? We're told to speak the truth to everybody. 
And he was saying, well, if they're non-believers, you can just lie to them. Tell them what they need to hear to get the sale. Now, he was not being a good Christian, Christian owner. Now, I'm not saying he was a bad Christian. He was a good Christian. He tithed from his business. But his practices were not those of a good Christian man leading a good Christian life. All right? And so this is a problem when we mix Christianity with non-Christianity, there's going to be problems. And usually, we're pulled down into the non-Christian world. We don't pull them up into the Christian world, which is why it's very important not to intermingle with, the, with those who don't believe. Now, even within Christian circles, there may be some branches of Christianity that don't match. All right? Let's say you're an Episcopalian. They're very high tr traditional Christianity and getting married to somebody who's a Pentecostal. Now, you're both Christian. There's really nothing technically wrong with that, but boy, the way you worship is so different that there's going to be problems in your, in your family life. So there's some things you have to look at and say, well, okay, we're both Christians, but do we still, are we still compatible? I would even say that it's hard for somebody who has been a Christian all their life and living a strong Christian life to get married to somebody who's a new Christian because that's hard. Because you expect more, one, both, one or both expects more from the other than they can get. And so we need to be careful. And I'm not saying it's wrong, it's just be careful, know what you're getting into. All right? And so he says, they're mixed up. He goes, they're like a cake that is not turned. And this is a flat cake that's baked on, baked on stone, or we would say a pancake. Right? They're like a pancake that's not turned. By the time the top gets, gets cooked, if you don't turn it, the bottom is burnt. So you have to turn it, and that's what he's saying. You are like a half-baked cake, all right? Uh, you're, you're only halfway there. You're not completely turned to me. And so it's kind of an interesting statement. You're, you're half-baked. <laughs> uh, strangers have devoured her strength, and he knows it not. The enemy has come in. They're, they're destroying their strength. They're hurting them. Much, again, much like our country today. All the sin that's going on, all the direction that we're going, and people don't even recognize how far we have fallen as a nation. They're going, oh, we're okay. Everything's going to be okay. We're, we're doing well. Uh, you know, yeah, we're being destroyed, but I don't, I'm not recognizing it. <laughs> uh, you know, and I, I kind of think this one is interesting. Yea, gray hairs are here upon him, and he knows it not. What is he saying? Gray hair is the sign of wisdom. He goes, you have grown wise and you're not even smart enough to know that you've grown wise. <laughs> In other words, they're not very wise. They've gone gray, but they're not getting wiser with their, with their years. And I hope you understand what that is. The longer I walk with God, the more I seem to know about him, the more I know what he wants and the easier it becomes to walk with him. And so there is this wisdom that comes with walking with him. And that knowledge, and he says, huh, you guys are down there, you're not, you're not learning, you're not growing, you don't even recognize that your strength is being zapped away from you. And if you've ever been in a bad situation where everything is going hard, have you ever been there where you just don't even like going someplace because it's so miserable, you, you feel bad about even thinking about going it? A lot of times it might be work. Things are going so bad at work, that you're miserable thinking about going to work, and when you get to work, you're even more miserable because you didn't even start with the right attitude in the first place because everything is seeming to be wrong, and this is what he's saying. You're, you're being, your strength is being zapped. Uh, you're not concentrating on him. Verse 10 says, The pride of Israel testifies in his face, and they don't return to the Lord, their God, nor seek him for all of this. Their sin is being spoken to them. Hosea is telling them about their sin. Others are telling them about their sin. And it's not bringing them to repentance. This is the critical thing. When we hear a message, there's times when I hear a message on the radio and I'm going, oh, God, why did you have to give me that message? And I have to do some repenting. I have to give some confession to God and say, God, uh, that message was for me. I'm really amazed how these, how these pastors all get together on the radio and plan, plan their messages just to speak to me each week. You know, uh, and I'm being facetious because I know it's God and the Holy Spirit doing it, and these guys are preached these messages in many cases years ago. 
But, you know, this really does happen. You're listening to a message and God speaks directly to you. Are you willing to repent and confess and turn to him? And so it, he says, I testified to you. I gave you, your, I gave you the weaknesses and you still didn't turn. You still did not turn to me, God says. Uh, Ephraim is like a silly dove without heart. They call on Egypt and they go to Assyria. Now, this is kind of an interesting thing, a silly dove, a naive, a deceitful dove. Now, if you have netting like this, doves are pretty easy to catch. They're pretty dumb animals. They don't fly away very fast, and if you have a net, you can catch them real easy. They're, they're fairly naive bird. Many birds you can't get anywhere close to before they fly off. Uh, have you ever seen doves and pigeons? You can get right in the midst of them, and they don't fly unless, unless you try to reach down and grab them. Then they decide maybe it's time to fly off. And he's saying, Ephraim is like these silly birds that don't, don't, take, their, don't take flight. They don't run. They don't, they don't turn to me. They just sit there ready to die. I, I would put quail in this, in this package. You know, quail are pretty easy birds to catch and pretty easy birds to, to get hold of. And he says, these guys, the, Ephraim, you're calling on to Egypt and to Assyria, the two big nations at this time, the two big empires. Egypt has been and has fallen. Assyria is up and coming. And you're going, you, when you get into trouble, you're calling on Egypt. You're calling on Assyria and you're not calling on me. God says, you're, you're going to the enemy. Verse 15 says, And when they shall go, I will spread my net upon them. I will bring them down as the fowls of the heaven. I will chastise them as their congregation has heard. God says, I'm just going to throw my net over them and you're going to be caught. All right? You can see, even in today's world, if they want to catch a lot of birds in a flock, they will take a net, put it into this cannon-like machine and fire it over the birds and let it fall over them and capture lots of birds and Usually when they do that, they're just marking them and tagging them. But if they were really hungry, they could capture a lot of birds that way. And, they, you know, and God says, I, I've got my net. My net's ready. I'm going to catch them in this net. He's going to throw the net over them and be able to catch them. And he says, and I will chastise them as their congregation has heard. Where have they heard? They've heard from Hosea. They've heard from Isaiah. They've heard from Jeremiah. They've heard from the from uh, Moses, they've heard over and over again that God brings judgment upon his people. And he's reminding them, uh, judgment is coming. It may look like it hasn't come. You may think that it's not coming, but my judgment comes. Same thing that we need to always remember. If you have a sin that you know is a sin and you want to keep, keep doing it, God's going to say, I'm going to bring judgment on it. Our nation has sins that we keep doing, and God says there is going to be judgment on the nation. And this is critical for us to understand. Judgment will come. And it's kind of a down, this book has many downer points on it, and this is one of those downer chapters, but, but it's still a true chapter. It is very true that we need to keep this in mind. Verse 13 says, Woe to them, for they have fled from me. Destruction unto them, because they have transgressed against me. Though I have redeemed them, yet they have spoken against me. God says, I've redeemed them. I've, I've rescued them. I've paid the price. And they are still rejecting. This is true even in our day. Jesus has died for the sins of the world. God has redeemed the world, and yet people reject him. They're not his. They won't turn to him. Even though the penalty has been paid, the price has been, been paid and people are all set to be redeemed. All they've got to do is reach out and take that gift and they don't turn to God. And he says, destruction is coming. I've redeemed you, but destruction is coming. If you don't accept this, it's coming. And God was always ready to forgive. We look back, Noah builds this great big boat takes two of every animal on it, which doesn't fill the boat very much. He puts provender in there for a year, year's worth of food, and there's still room for anybody who repented. Anybody could have repented and gotten on that boat if they had repented, and yet none of them did. Noah preached for 120 years while he's building the boat, 
Yeah, and, he, and people were doing just like Hosea's, you know, oh, no, what's wrong with you? It, you know, everything's going good. We haven't had any big problems. Rain, what is this rain stuff you're talking about? There's no such thing as rain. The, the water doesn't fall from the sky. It just mists up and waters the ground. And, and you're talking about it falling from the sky. And what's this flood stuff you're talking about? Water everywhere? The, the water's out there in the ocean. It doesn't come on dry land. He sounded like a fool. Everything is going good. They're marrying, having businesses, having children, having a grand old time in all of their sin, and this crazy nut over there building a boat is telling them God's bringing judgment. And then God closed the door. Israel, in, in about 40 years, God's going to close the door on them, and he's going to bring judgment on them. Another 100 years after that, he closes the door on Judah and brings judgment on them. There's going to be a time very soon when the door is going to be closed and God is going to bring judgment by taking the church out and let the tribulation period reign on this world. And the door will be closed. And at that point, people are going to go, ah, it's been like this all the time. God doesn't bring judgment. We're hearing it right now. We're hearing it right now when the people, ah, you know, what are you talking about this judgment stuff? God doesn't bring judgment on us. You know, we've been doing the same thing for for centuries, for millennia, and nothing bad has happened. You know, nothing bad has happened. Nothing, you know, you guys just don't know what you're talking about. This is that message. You don't know what you're talking about. God says, destruction's coming. It is going to come. Verse 14 says, they have, they have not cried unto me with their heart. When they howl upon their beds, they assemble themselves with corn and wine, and they rebel against me. What is God saying here? Oftentimes when people are alone, they will cry out to God, but not with their heart. Their emotions will say, God, I need you, but they won't turn to him with their whole heart for trusting God. This is where salvation comes in. I cry to God with my whole heart. God, I am a sinner. I know I'm a sinner. I deserve punishment, and I believe that Jesus is the only way of forgiveness. Now, there will be people that will go, God, I need your help. God, really help me. If you just help me, I'm going to do. But they never admit that they're a sinner. They never admit that they, need, that they deserve punishment. They never repent. They never turn to God for that, for that repentance. And God says, and I love this. He goes, they have not cried unto me with their heart, their innermost being. And then note that he says, when they howl from their bed. There are those times when you're in that quiet spot. This is when we really know that our life is messed up. When we're sleeping in bed, we're trying to go to sleep, whatever, we're by ourselves, and then God's Holy Spirit comes in and tweaks our conscience. Makes us realize that we aren't as good as we think we are. We're not as fun as, we, as everybody thinks we are. We're not as happy as everybody thinks we are. And then we will yell and cry out, but not in a total repentance of heart. And, and God understands. He goes, when you do this, when you howl, you're not turning to me. And usually that's just people griping against God. God, why have you let all these bad things happen? You know, if you just get me out of this trouble, I will do X, Y, Z. And then forget about it as soon as God helps us or as soon as we get out of our pity party moment with the spirit chasing us. And the one thing about it is when God starts chasing us, we're in trouble. Because he is going to keep pestering us. He's going to keep tweaking our conscience. He's going to keep showing us where he has touched our life, where, where he has spoken to us. We will remember those times when some nutty Christian gave us the gospel message and we blew it off. We'll remember the time we did go to church one time and heard a gospel message and didn't respond. We'll remember the time when we opened up our Bible and said we didn't understand anything and God brings it back to memory and tells us how bad we need him and we blow it off. This is what he's talking about here. You know better and you're ignoring me. And, the, and, and you have spoken, yet they speak against me and they rebel against me in these two verses. All right? Speaking against God, rebelling against God. Have you ever listened to somebody? 
I kind of think it's so funny when somebody will tell me they don't believe in God, he doesn't care for them, and then everything bad is God's fault. All right, and I've heard this so often from people. Well, I don't believe there's a real God out there who cares about me, but it's, his, it's God's fault that all these bad things have happened to me. And it's like, well, I thought you didn't believe in God. Well, I don't. But you just said it's God's fault. Yeah. And it's really funny when an atheist does that to you. you know, they don't believe in God at all, and yet it's all God's fault for all the bad stuff that's happened to them. And so it's, it's very funny. Uh, verse 15, Though I have bound and strengthened their arms, yet they imagine mischief against me. This is what a picture. God says, I've come into you. I put the bandages on you. I put the antiseptic on you. I have fixed you up. I have made it so that you can walk and still live. And it says, yet they imagine evil against him. And it's kind of, it's kind of a funny picture. Dr. God comes in. He puts your arm in a sling, puts a cast on it. And then you then you get angry at him and, and accuse him of all the bad, even though he's the one trying to help you. And it's like, oh, it's all your fault, God. Many of the cases when we read Job, that's exactly what was going on. God says, I've come in, I have bound you. And Job's friends, and, and even Job at the end, after being hammered by his friends, are saying, God, it's all your fault. I don't, know why, I don't know why you're doing all of this stuff. And then God steps in and starts talking to Job to, to give him the honest picture. And in verse 16, they return, but not to the Most High. They are like a deceitful bow. Their princes fall by the sword for the rage of their tongue. This shall be their derision in the land of Egypt. He goes, they return back, not to God, but to the rituals. All right? So every once in a while, they'd go back and say, okay, we're going to offer our sacrifices. We're going to... We're going to give the morning oblation. We're going to, we'll go to the synagogue today and, and hear the, hear the, hear the uh, Pentateuch being read and hear a prophet being read. It doesn't mean anything. We're not turning to God. What a powerful statement. And yet, how many people do we know, sometimes even Christians, that go back to formalism rather than God? God, I'm going to come to church and you're going to just be happy I come to church. God, I'm going to drop a few dollars in the in the offering, and, you, and this is going to be my, my gift to you. But God, I'm not coming back to you. I'm just coming back to the activities, the show. Many of the cults and false religions are all about the show. If I do enough things in front of people, I'm going to look good, and they're going to think that I'm a good person, and they're going to think that I belong to God, and God says, you're not mine. And I, I think this, they are like a deceitful bow. What they mean here is a warped, warped bow. All right? You shoot this bow, it doesn't aim well. It doesn't have power behind it. All right? It's deceitful. Let's turn it into our weapons. Uh, if you have a rifle or a, or a pistol that isn't sighted right, and you can, sight the, the, you can get your sights just right to, to be true for you. Uh, first time I used somebody else's gun, I had to get used to their sights because the sights weren't good for me. Now, I'm not saying they weren't good for them, but I tried to sight down, this, down it, and the bullet did not go where I thought it was going to go. So I paid attention to where it went, and I made my adjustments so that I could hit the target. This is what he's talking about, a deceitful bow. It's a useless bow, it's, unless you know the bow, and even then you're not going to you know, you're not want the de deceitful bow. It's warped. It's not throwing the arrow hard, as hard as it should. It's not throwing it true. And I don't know if any of you have done archery before, but it's kind of interesting uh, if you've ever gone to camp and you use those stupid wooden bows that they that, that they have at camp that don't throw the don't throw the arrow very far and can't be aimed very well they're they're this category deceitful bows as opposed to my nice compound bow that i've had that that i could hit the target to by sighting down the down the arrow and it threw through the arrow hard and i've used these stupid deceitful bows before and yeah you, you sight down and you're and you shoot the arrow and you've got it all sighted, it's supposed to hit the target and it jumps off to the left. This is what he's talking about. That they are like a deceitful bow. Their arrow is not hitting the target, which is God. And this is what sin is. The word for sin means to miss the mark. And it is an archery term. You've missed the mark. You were supposed to, you were supposed to hit the bullseye. You're not at the bullseye. You've missed the mark. 
And that is what sin is. We're shooting to, for, for God's perfection, and we miss that perfection. And here he's talking about the same type of term. You're a deceitful bow. You're, you're, you're supposedly trying to turn to God, and you're not doing it the right way. And he says, and they fall by the sword for the rage of their tongue. This shall be their derision in the land of Egypt. He goes, when you get back to Egypt, they're going to be making fun of you for turning away from me. If you remember the Pentateuch, all the time the people of Israel said, we want to return to Egypt, we want to return to Egypt. And Moses kept telling them, if you go back to Egypt, you're going to, they're going to think, oh, actually he's telling God, God, if you kill them in this land because they deserve it, then the Egyptians are going to make fun of you and say that you could not deliver your people. If they go back to them, they're going to, they're going to make fun of them that you could not, could not cover, you know, take care of your people. And this is what he's saying. You're going to go back to Egypt and they're going to make fun of you. Egypt is really speaking of going back to the world. If you're, if you're a Christian and you fall backwards into sin and you try to join your old crowd of buddies, oftentimes they'll tease you. We thought you had something better. You, you abandoned us. What, what, what went on? Why, why are you back here with us? You had something better, we thought. And it tears down God's reputation. Now, God's going to get over it because he knows, he knows that. But for a period of time, it tears down his reputation in front of them because we're holding up of derision. I left you because I'm believing in God, and now I'm back because God didn't do what I thought he was going to do. Now, we're not going to say it that way, but that's exactly how they're going to interpret it. Hey, what are you back here in the, in, the, in, the, in the bar drinking with us? Why are you back here in the, in the drug house drink, you know, doing it? Why, why are you back into sleeping around? Or why are you being doing whatever that sin is that you were committing? And they're looking at you going, I thought you had something better. You said you had something better. You, you, were, you were too good for us and didn't want to do all these things. And now here you are. And they're going to hold you in derision. And not just you, they're holding God in derision. Now, God doesn't deserve it, but they're still going to look to say, it's God. God didn't protect this person. And in, unfortunately, we set back their salvation, possibly, by falling back into those routines. Now, we're not that strong, but we do give them a reason not to believe. And... You know, if you think about it, how many people did you know before you got saved that gave you a reason not to believe in God? You looked at their life and said, well, if that's what a Christian is, I don't want to have anything to do with it. If, if that's a Christian, well, I'm not, you know, I don't want anything to do with it. This is why we need to show love. We need to show compassion. We need to show forgiveness. We need to show humility. When we do mess up, and note that I didn't say if we mess up, but when we do mess up, we need to be able to tell people, I am sorry, that was not the way I should have acted. That's hard. Especially if you have to do it to your children. And you say, you know what, I really messed up. I should not have done that. I did not obey God very well in that as aspect. A co-worker who's been watching you and you've been witnessing to, you know, a spouse, <laughs> uh, you know, other people in church, it's not easy to be humble and ask for forgiveness. And yet that is important for us to do. Learn to be asking for forgiveness. Don't bring God into derision in front of the world. Now, he's strong enough and big enough, he'll overcome it. But it's still something we don't want to do because that starts to give people an excuse. And we know that that's true because we know people that were going, wow, if that person's a Christian, I don't want to be, I don't want to be a Christian. We don't want to be that Christian that makes, that makes people say that. Now, I understand we're not perfect. That's when humility comes into place. You know, uh, you know what, you know, my friend, you know, I've been telling you about God. What I did was definitely not what God wanted me to do. So I've already repented before God, and now I'm telling you I'm sorry. I'm sorry for what you saw me do because it wasn't the right way to live. I've had to do that a few times in my life. It's not an easy thing to do. But we need to get to that point where we're going, all right, I hurt the testimony of God. Now I have to be humble enough to let people know that, yes, I am only human, but it should not have happened. And this is the importance. When we apologize to somebody, 
It's going to be, I'm sorry, this is what I did, and I, and I will not do it again, and this is what I'm going to do to not do it again. Make it a full apology. Now, I used to tell my kids, and they hated it because I did not let them get away with just saying, I'm sorry. They had to make sure that the people knew what they were sorry for, because most of the time they were sorry, but they were sorry that they got caught. They weren't sorry for what they did, and my, my making them really apologize bugged them. Because it wasn't now that I got, I got caught that I'm sorry for, but I've got to really humble myself and tell you that I'm sorry for what I did and tell them that you're not going to do it again to the best of your ability. And this is important. This is part of repentance before God. God, I've done this. I am sorry. I repent. Help me not to do it again. And try to live with his help to not do it again. And it is not easy. It is not easy to live a Christian life on one side of the coin, especially if I'm trying to do it in my own strength. I have to let God crucify my flesh and let him live out of me to truly live the Christian life. And even then I'm going to mess up because my flesh doesn't get totally crucified and, I, and he doesn't crucify all of my flesh at, the, at one moment. So there's going to be all these problems that I have and I'm going to have to say I'm sorry an awful lot. I'm going to have to be humble and number one, apologize to God. And then number two, apologize to those that have been hurt by my sin. It's not an easy life sometimes. So we're going to end here. Lord, we just thank you for this day. Lord, teach us to come before you with humble hearts. Teach us to see that you're behind everything that's going on in our life, that you are, our sin is in front of you, our actions are in front of you, and that when we commit sin, we are to turn to you in humility and confession, and then turn to others and ask them for forgiveness as well. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening friends, where will you be when you die? We ask this question of a lot of people oftentimes, and the biggest answer we'll get is, I hope I will be in heaven. If hope is your answer, you don't know God, and that's is a problem. We all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of the sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. If you do not know for sure that you're going to go into heaven, please today make your decision to follow him. It is simply just ask him, Lord, I am a sinner. Please come into my life and save me and make him your Lord. If you said that prayer, let us know so that we can send you a new believers packet. You can contact us at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or even pastor at chloridebaptistchurch.com. Or you can just send us a regular letter at Chloride Baptist Church, P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona, 86431. Thank you very much for listening and have a wonderful day.